Well, thank you, Amy, for, for reading the text. And like I was saying, you know, this is our, our last sermon out of the book of Leviticus. So Amy and I's last chance to convert you to, uh, to loving the book of Leviticus. I, I mean, it's an incredibly practical book. I mean, it's, it, you get bogged down for sure, like we talked about the challenges of Leviticus in these individual laws and how many there are. And it feels at times like they're hard to make sense of or how to hold them all together, especially when they deal with so many different topics. Um, but these, these laws really all encompassing, right? You really get it here again at the end of this series and in these laws in particular, the point of all of them. There has been a promise from the beginning of the Pentateuch in Genesis onward, right, of a, of a Savior who is going to come, this child who is going to redeem and save his people, all people, undo sin and death, and that this people of God are to be waiting and watching for this coming Savior. And they're going to go into this land that God has prepared for them, and they're to be a blessing to all of the nations because this Savior is not just coming for them, but coming for the whole world. And they are to represent him. They are to speak of him. They are to show this God and who he is. And the way they're going to do that is they're going to be a holy people, meaning a distinct people, a people unlike any other people. And so God brings them to Sinai. And like we, we've gone through all of these narratives so far, he brings them here not to save his people, right? The laws, the intention of the laws was not to save them. They've already been saved. They've been brought out of Egypt. That was done. The Passover happened. Like they are his. They have saved them from, he has saved them from slavery and brought them to himself. So the laws are not to save them. Rather, the laws, though, are how they are to represent him, to be holy, to be like him. They have not been set free by the law, but rather they have been set free for the law. Like this is God's hope, his intention, his plan for his people. That his people are to be unlike every other people. His family is going to be unlike every other family in this world because he is unlike any other God in this world. With that constant refrain throughout Leviticus and throughout all of the Pentateuch, but especially here in Leviticus, be holy for I am holy, right? Be distinct, be different because I am distinct, I am different. Their God is unlike any other God and they are to be unlike any other people. And really, as we look at these last laws, and really they become pretty all-consuming laws now about all of life, you really do get the whole of Leviticus summed up here as we end this book. That really it all comes down to loving your neighbor as yourself here in Leviticus 19. Leviticus is the, is the book that's most quoted by Jesus when Jesus is doing his teaching. He quotes Leviticus constantly. And you can see it, especially here in 19, right? That sounds like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Don't lie, don't deal falsely, don't kill, don't steal. I mean, it's, whoa, this is Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the point. And this is what is going to really s let them stand out in the culture that they're going into. In the land that you operate in, where you live, you will be so distinct as a people in how you love other people. And that first passage that Amy read out of Leviticus 19, right? I mean, if you look at these individual laws within it, it really is how are you in your day-to-day -day life, how you're going to treat people. And you're going to treat people very differently than the rest of the world treats people. In how you manage your money, right? We've read that passage about the, the field now, about three Sundays in a row we've read this, because it's so a central idea within Leviticus that you are not to glean, you are not to reap the entire harvest every time. Every year, when you have a harvest, don't take all of it. Don't 
take all of the grapes off the vine. It's this real reference to the people that you will be a people who will not just maximize and take from the land, but rather you will leave for others. You will willingly not, because it's your field, right? You, you have the right, I mean, why would you not, right? I mean, if you think of it, a farmer, why would a farmer not just maximize and take those last rows of crop? But the Lord said, no, you're going to leave it. You're not going to take all the grapes off the vine. You're going to leave them, right? Because I am the Lord, right? Meaning, again, because that's not what everyone else does. Everyone else maximizes their profit. Everyone maximizes their income. How much money can I make? How far can I push the land? How much can I do to maximize the money that I'm going to get off of it? The Lord says, no, that's not how my people are going to operate in their day-to-day life. They are not going to be thinking primarily about how can they maximize their income levels? How much can they get? Rather, they will leave it on the vine. There will be some that they will not, they know they could get more, but they won't maximize it. In how they speak, in how we speak to and about our neighbors, we will not lie, right? We will not swear against people. And really, a lot of this is all dealing within the court world, within within arguments over land, over profits. I mean, a lot of us have this within our own day-to-day life as well, where, I mean, you could say something to maximize the income that you get. You can lie about just a little bit about what you did or what someone else did, or, you, you know, you can turn that screw just a little bit more to maximize that profit and cut it away from somebody else. In other words, no, that's not the way you are going to deal with people in this world. You are not going to deal falsely with them. You will be honest with them. And how you manage your wages, right, that picture there of you shouldn't just hold the wages overnight for a worker. I mean, many of us are in those positions where we supervise others, where we hold the wages of others, right? You are not going to hold on to the wages of other people. Rather, you will quickly, justly pay other people. Again, unlike all the other nations. How you're going to treat the infirmed, those who can't work among your midst, right? This, the, the blind, those who are not able to contribute to this society, who are not going to be able to work themselves, right? He says, don't put a stumbling block before them. How are you going to treat the people in your nation who come to you, the sojourner, the traveler, or who are among you, but who are physically unable to work? What will you do for them? How will you treat them? Right? Every other nation, every other people says, right? If they can't contribute, they get nothing. Right? God says, no, you will live very differently with the infirmed, with those who are unable to provide, who are unable to work. And who you press legal matters in court with, how you handle the court systems. You know, it, we think of today as a world in which there's over, you know, litigations and people push things in court too far. I mean, that has always been the case with humanity, which is, which is why we have the courts. I mean, it's always been this. If, if I can get something through this man, means, I will do it. If that, it, hey, the system is there to be used, I'm just using it. I have every right to sue my neighbor for this or for that. I'm going to do it. Or says, no, that's not how you're going to operate in this world. You're not just going to litigate against anybody you want for the reasons that you want, or again, to maximize your profit. I 
And really, we have to think of this again. It's agrarian, right? It's, so it's hard for us sometimes where we're like, well, I don't, you know, I'm not a farmer. But this is, again, like just their livelihood, the way in which they worked. And really around that land, this owning of the land. So, so much of these legal matters would be disputes about who's got the rights to certain boundaries or what property is theirs or for how long it's going to be theirs, those types of things. And saying, yeah, you can press this, but you're not going to. You're going to feel, you're going to be a very distinct people. And then finally, this last one, and here it sounds really like Jesus, or I guess Jesus sounds a lot like Leviticus, right? But if it's not enough just that you won't sue your neighbor. It's not just enough that you won't swear against your neighbor. It's not enough that you won't just you know, over-harvest your field and leave nothing for your neighbor. Rather, in your heart, you will not hate your neighbor. You, cannot har- you will not be a people who are bitter and resentful towards your neighbors. You will do justice to them, you will treat them justly, and you will also love them not just in action, but you will not hate them in your heart. You will have hearts that are oriented towards your neighbor in a way that is genuinely loving towards them. It won't be just words for the people of God going into the land. There will be a genuine heart of love for their neighbors that comes out in their actions, in their everyday life, and in particularly in these matters of work, and living alongside of other people. That's where they're going to show this distinct love of God. Incredibly practical and incredibly needed. But then you get to Leviticus 25. And these laws make sense so far. I mean, we've heard these things. They're not incredibly groundbreaking ideas that you shouldn't take advantage of the poor and the powerless, that you should take care of others, that you should love your neighbor. I mean, these... These are pretty common ideas. We've heard these. We know this. Our culture knows these things, right? I mean, they're not hard laws to understand. They are incredibly hard laws, though, to be consistent in and follow, which we see in our culture. We see in our own lives. In Leviticus 25, you really get the most powerful idea that comes out of Leviticus for really what changes people's hearts and motivations, alters all worldviews, and in such a way that enables us to love our neighbor. And we didn't read all of 25. If you want to, you're welcome to read all of 25. That just felt a little unfair to make Amy read all of 25. Um, But this is really this idea of Sabbath years and the year of Jubilee, which is just incredible, right? Just incredible. If you've never read this or thought about this or knew what this was in the Bible, this is God's plan for his people, right? Every seventh year, this would be the Sabbath year. Remember, so there's a Sabbath in the week, He's already established that for his people. You are to work six days, and then you're to not work on the seventh day. Just rest. It's a holy day unto the Lord. Well, he also applies this now to the land. You're to work the land for six years, but on the seventh year, nothing. You're to leave the land. Don't plant. Don't reap. Don't do anything to the land. It's a year of rest for the land. Like, the land needs a year of rest, whoa. And if you're a servant, your, your contract is up. If you enslaved yourself, like you volunteered yourself as a slave, as a servant to someone else, it, it's good for seven years. And so, again, you've got to prorate it, and there's a lot of restrooms about prorating things. You know, like if you're signing up, you've got seven years, but if you're going to back up into that year of Jubilee, you should account for that, because 
Every seven years, servants are done. The land is given a rest. But then every 50th year is the year of Jubilee. And that is where everything goes back to everybody else. The land is no longer your land, but it goes back to whoever it was originally. They have the chance to redeem it again. Like, you've been working this land for 49 years, your family. But in year 50, it goes back to that original family, whoever you leased it from or who you bought it from. They now have the chance. Now, they could decline, and they could say, no, you can keep working the land. But they could take it back. If you were a servant or a slave, you're done, done. It doesn't matter if you signed up to be a slave the year before year 50. And that's why it says, like, you've got to kind of prorate this. Just realize you're only going to be a servant for a year, and then you're totally free. Or again, if you bought property off of somebody, and you know the year of Jubilee is coming, you are only going to have that land for two years. So you only pay according to how many years until that 50th year comes. And then everything goes back to everybody else. It's, a, it's incredible. Now, there's, there are some distinctions. If it's a house in the city, that doesn't go back to anybody every 50th year. You can own a house in the city forever. That can be perpetual because it's not connected to land. And if you're a Levite, you've got certain kind of rights to, to houses because, again, the Levites didn't have land either. But all of it kind of really connected to the land where everything, every 50th year, everything returns. Land returns. People get to redeem that initial land again that they had. Because again, if you fell into slavery, basically or you fell into debt to so far that you had to sell the family farm kind of idea. Well, it's only going to be one generation until you can get it back. Like your kid could get the, the land back would be the hope here now, right? Or again, if you had to sell yourself into slavery because you fell into debt so far. Again, there's these provisions and hopes like he brought here, like a, a relative could come and redeem you, like Amy mentioned, that's the ideal. A relative would come and redeem you or redeem the land, but if that didn't happen, if there's no relative to redeem you or no one in your money, family has money, they never got wealthy, you never got wealthy, you never could redeem yourself, just wait for the 50th year and then it's all over and you go back and everything goes back to the way that it was. I mean, it's an incredible incredible idea <laughs> and system that it is just unfathomable to us modern westerners you know but this idea but it really it prohibits as a people it was going to prohibit or ideally would prohibit a land-owning class right there would not be this class of people who would perpetually own the land and then abuse the poor and the powerless who would always be working for the landowners that that couldn't happen in the system Right? The landowners would have to give the land away again. You work and own land, but it's not forever your land because it could go back at any time. And so a one, it's a real check to the landowner, knowing that in year 50 you may have to give up the land or it may no longer be yours. But then it also gives a lot of hope to the poor who would have been in who would be working, right? Because there was a lot of this idea throughout Leviticus of like you could be a hired worker. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound so great. <laughs> but again, there is this within the system, on the seventh year, you're done. And on the 50th year, your whole family could be done. You get a reset, a once-in-a-lifetime, once-every-generation reset on, your, on everything. So it gives that hope that even slavery or service to others would not be forever. And so Leviticus 
19 and 25 working together here really serves for this picture of you are to, when you go into the land and as you work the land, you're to treat it as if the land is not your land, right? I mean, it helps to make more sense of how they are supposed to love the neighbor as themselves because your land is not ultimately yours, but the Lord's. Your neighbor, if you are, if they're working for you, they're not yours either, but rather they're the Lord's and everything will be redeemed. You're to work hard for years one through six. <laughs> this isn't an idea of just, you know, no, don't own land, don't work hard, kind of, you know, just keep everything in common. No, it, it, it's clearly, there's buying, there's selling, there's working, there's harvesting, there's planting, there's it's very hard work. You're to work very, very hard, but again, with this knowledge that redemption is coming, that this is not ultimately my land forever. These people are not my people forever, right? This belongs to the Lord. And so these laws, especially these ones that are given to the people as they go forward, really reveal a lot about God and humanity. The fact that these laws are so specific around legal matters, around profit margins, around how you harvest, how you prorate contracts. I mean, that's, that's very specific. Like, why would a holy text be this specific, right? Again, and that's why people don't like Leviticus, because it feels overly specific. You know, why, why would it be in here? Why can't you just say, right, be just, go and be a people who are just? Why do you have to be so specific with all of these things? Well, it reveals a lot about us as a people and about God's people and just humanity. It reveals that there is going to always be a tendency to take advantage of our positions of privilege to try and advance ourselves economically. We just always will do it. If given the opportunity, I will maximize my income. I will maximize my advantages. We will maximize profits at all costs. Right? If given enough leeway, right? We may start out not thinking that way, but eventually, right, left my own devices, my own tendencies, I will look to maximize my income as much as I can. Whatever it is, off of investments, off of tax returns, off of investment properties, off of my own property, what, my job, whatever it is, right? If there's a way to turn that screw a little bit, to get a little bit more income, to get a little bit more profit, we're going to do it. We're always going to do it. Humanity is always going to be looking to maximize profits. And what comes with that, because again, it has to be very specifically called out to us to not deal falsely, to not lie. We will lie to maximize our profits. We will deal falsely with people. And whatever that profit is, you know, this can, even going back to school, you know, I used to be a high school teacher, right? You know, I we, everyone cheats in school. Everyone lies. Why? Right? Just to maximize a little bit more. I just, I, just, I just need a few more points. I just need a little bit better grade. This is what we do. And that, that doesn't stop in school. That continues on through life and in work and everywhere else. I mean, if it's just a, it's just a little, little dishonesty to maximize a little bit more of my returns, I'm going to do it. That's my, that's my tendency. And if there are systems in place 
that I can use to maximize, I'll do that too. Like the legal system. Hey, it exists. I will use it. The tax codes exist. I will do it. You know, the PPE loans, whatever. Hey, look, this has all been given. All right, I'm just going to max. If, if I can use the governmental or the legal system in such a way to maximize my income, why not? I should. Everyone should. Just because not everyone's doing it as well as I am doesn't mean I shouldn't. It, you're just maximizing, maximizing, and trying to get as much as we can. And it, it's going to come out in a lack of care for others, right? especially those who are disadvantaged or who cannot do the same work that we can or aren't able to do the work that we will. We will put stumbling blocks before the blind and the poor to try to maximize our own income levels. And it's going to really come out, especially for Israel here, and frankly for us today in the West as well, but in how we own property and how we think of property. Right? Property is everything, and the owning of property is everything. And there's a lot in the news today about that as well, obviously, if you've been paying attention. You know, many of you have been trying to buy houses unsuccessfully. Many of you have just recently bought houses. Many of you have been very thankful that you own a house and don't have to buy a house right now. Um, but that is the, the national narrative, right? Like the way to wealth, the way to prosperity is to own property, and everybody should be able to, and you should buy property and get property, and property is everything. If left to ourselves and to our own devices, we will maximize and take as much as we can from everything, from money, from land, and from relationships, right? There's no way I'm going to leave grapes on the vine, right? I am going to take every grape off that vine. They're going to grow next year. <laughs> I mean, why would I leave them there? Why would I leave the edges of my field? No way. I'm going to take everything I can. So it reveals, these laws reveal a lot about our tendencies and about humanity, which we see clearly around us. And it also reveals a lot about who God is to his people and ultimately to the world. It reveals that the God of Israel is a God of redemption and a God of abundance. He is a God who provides for his people and who is near to his people who has provided for them and who will provide for them. I mean, this idea that you would do nothing on the seventh year, I mean, one day a week is hard enough to really believe that God will provide for me without me having to go and work for it one day a week. But an entire year of no work, that I have to trust that year six is going to be so bountiful of a harvest that there will be enough food to feed me my family, and everyone with us as a nation for an entire year. That requires a lot of faith in God that I really believe he will provide for me on that seventh year. That's, that's incredible, right? But again, that's what God is telling them. That's who I am as a God. I will provide for you enough, an abundance I will provide for you that you can take a year off that you could work a farm, you could work a land for 49 years and lose it and not be in a position of need, that God would provide for you and redeem you. I mean, this, 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 is a, this God is unlike right, any God. This, this system is unlike any religious system. No, no religion has a system like this or a picture like this. A God who identifies and loves the weak in the society the poor and the oppressed, the sojourner. He continually calls himself the God of the poor and the oppressed, the weak, the sojourner, the widow, you know, not of the landowner, 
He's not the God of the strong, but the God of the weak. And a God who really cares about loving neighbors more than about following the law. Because what we really see within all of this, it, it's really, it's not about a legal code of here's the sacrifices you need to make on behalf of your neighbor. We've already got, the sacrificial system existed to remind them again of their need for atonement and their hope of atonement and the reality of a priest mediating for them. I mean, all of those things. But the sacrifices didn't mean they loved their neighbors. Right? What God cares about is this wholehearted way of life of his people. That they are going to be a people whose life is going to be so radically different and transformed that they will live amongst others in a way, every way of their life is going to look like their God. They will have a character of life that reflects this radical generosity and care, just like their God. It won't be just actions, but it'll actually be a real, genuine heart change. Like, you will not hate your brother. You will not hate your neighbor. How can that be promised, right? It's not just the actions, but rather a generosity and love towards others that will reflect the generosity and love of God. And they and we, right, will be a loving and generous people to the degree that we have received that same love and generosity from God. That's what keeps being reminded to them, right? You will be loving and generous because God has been loving and generous to you. The greatest calling for them as they're going into the land, is to have a consistent life of love and generosity. That they will value people over profits, that they will love their neighbor, that every aspect of their life will reflect this entirely different way of viewing the world that comes out of the Exodus. Like this Exodus experience for these people is life-changing Obviously, not just for them, but it will be for the entire nation of Israel, right? All of Israel looks back to the Exodus as their story. All of Christians look back to the Exodus as their story. This Exodus is the foundation of who we are as a people, and it will change them forever. It changes us forever. This story of redemption. Because how do we become a people like this is the real, the big question, as we're kind of, you know, as you're going through the laws of Leviticus, like all of this is fine, whether you agree or not with the law, because for some of us who are a little more, you know, I don't know, conservative or capitalistic, a little, this sounds a little socialist or a little, I don't know if I totally agree with all of these things, but okay, I can kind of get there. I can see the point of the law. I can see this, well, it would be interesting, you know, but whether or not we think it or not, I mean, it's still that to be a people transformed like this that actually believe these things, I mean, how do I even, how would I even get there? How do we become a people who are genuinely generous? Because if we're honest with ourselves, Christians have not been very good at being uh, generous people. We really haven't. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. Genuinely generous. Christians have been historically incredibly generous when it comes to giving money and starting institutions, nonprofits, Lots of things, a lot of actions that are very, very generous, which is good, which isn't a bad thing. You know, if you, if you drive around, you know, I think there's a block there around like Lake Street and South Minneapolis. I mean, you, can, you will find hundreds of Christian nonprofit ministries. I mean, there are no shortage of Christian ministries and efforts. 
But we are not as good at living wholehearted lives of generosity and love and kindness in everything that we do. How do we become a people who are generous, not just with end-of-year giving or monthly budget items, but rather in all of our dealings with our neighbors? You know, how do we have that heart? And Leviticus tells the people, right, how they're to have this heart change, which is really, again, to remember the Exodus and to look forward to the year of Jubilee, which for us, I mean, is really the same. You know, as, we, as, as Christians on this side of, of Jesus Christ, right, we really have the same story as the Jews who are in the Exodus. You know, you, they were to be reminded that they too were once sojourners and slaves. They were once an enslaved people with no hope. There was no jubilee coming for them in Egypt. 400 years, constant slavery and oppression and dying, right? They were once slaves. This is Paul's admonition to us as Christians as well. Remember, you were once enslaved to darkness and sin as well, without any hope. There was no jubilee for you either. We were enslaved and in darkness. Remember, that's who you once were as well. Remember that even now that you have been redeemed, because it's easy to get arrogant in your redemption, for the Israelites, remember that you are now my servants. You are not in a position of lording over others, ruling over others, that everybody serves you now because you have power or privilege or money. The same is now true for us as Christians as well. Paul will tell the same thing in Romans now. Remember, now you are now slaves to Christ. God to the Israelites, you are now servants of mine. Right? It puts us in its place. Remember that we all ultimately serve the same master. And then for the Israelites, that hope of the year of Jubilee. Wow. I mean, if you, I mean, that is, again, it's hard for us to really envision what a hope that would be. But again, if you were the downtrodden, if you had lost everything, the year is coming when everything will be put back right. And for us, this is the same. Paul in the New Testament reminds us, Jesus reminds us of this too, the day is coming when all things will be put back right. This land that you think is yours is really not, belongs to God, and it all goes back to its rightful owner. The gospel, remembering the gospel, kills pride and arrogance. It really does. Remembering our narratives, the stories of our own redemption, remembering who we once were, who we now are, and what awaits us. It, it just kills that pride and arrogance that we have, and especially towards our money, towards our property, towards our things. And it reorientates our heart to be able to love to others. Because what that does for me is if my heart is changed, right, and then my whole lifestyle changes and in such a way that I no longer have to do generous actions and fits and starts. Because we can hear these laws, and become convinced, convinced and convicted, right? Like, okay, I am going to, I'm, okay, starting now, I'm going to start doing more generous actions towards others. I will go find whoever needs it and be more loving and generous towards them. That's not the call that God gives in Leviticus. He doesn't say go into the land and look for people to be kind to or to be generous to. You have neighbors. You have people. We all have people. 
there's no lack of people that are, we are called to love. Rather, we're called to have a heart that loves people. Because without that heart change, our actions of being generous just become legalistic. And many of us have fallen into that, right? And which is why we're so inconsistent with it. I will, I'm going to be more generous. And so we are more generous. But then it fades away. Or we look for, okay, okay that, yeah, I'm going to get back to being generous again. And, and it becomes an action, right? Rather, if I really have this worldview or this vision of the way in which this world is, right? I now actually will just have a life of generosity, which is what God is calling us as a people to have. Like uh, Deirdre preached last week on the laws on hospitality, right? I mean, this is a, we as a people are to have a life that reflects God, not just actions that reflect God. The call is for us to have lives that are completely transformed by God in a way that completely alters the way in which we view reality. And that we actually view the world differently than all the other nations, all the other people. Because we have a God that's different than all of the other gods, all of the other nations have. If the gospel is true, right, it changes everything. And I think the, the biggest and most primary thing that changes, if we really believe this about God, what's revealed in his text and through the Pentateuch, is that we actually live in a world of abundance, not in a world of scarcity. That's, that's the narrative God continually is impressing upon his people. In the desert, right, in a place of scarcity, he continues to promise them abundance and promises, you don't have to work the seventh day, you don't have to work the seventh year, you don't have to hold the land, like, I will provide for you. And, and they're in a context where they look around and they can't even possibly believe that, right? And like, where are you going to provide for us? But he's trying to instill in them this belief, right, that the world is a world of abundance because of him, because he is on their side. He is their God, and he will provide for them and take care of them. It's not a world of competition. The culture and the world around us, obviously still today, pushes these narratives, these beliefs, that this is a world of scarcity and a world of competition, where you've got to get yours, and you've got to maximize it, whatever advantage you can get, Whatever you have to do, if that means getting a higher grade point average, if that means getting a higher test score, if that means getting a promotion, if that means, what, you better do it. You need to do it because there's not enough to go around, right? It doesn't reflect a belief in a God who abundantly cares and provides for his people. This changes the way in which we live this world, right? Because how many things would change in our lives, if we believed God has provided and God will provide abundantly for our needs. If we believe that, right, what would change? A lot. A lot changes in how I orient my life towards others, how I handle my money, how I handle interactions with other people, how I open my home to others. All these things change if I really believe that God abundantly provides. It produces a lifestyle of generosity and love. Our lives will reflect radical generosity, they'll reflect radical love, but only if we have experienced it, if we have experienced that radical generosity and radical love of the Father, which is given to us in Jesus Christ, right? He becomes the picture of generous love, the picture of leaving everything for us, right? This is, and then providing ultimately everything for us. 
it's remembering the gospel and med meditating on the gospel and on that word that provides this heart change for us to be able to live these types of lives. Now, we're not going to do it perfectly. This isn't right. Again, Israel is not going to do this perfectly. I mean, there's a lot of scholars, scholarly arguments about did they ever do the year of Jubilee? It's difficult to say if that ever even happened in their history. Maybe, maybe not. But again, it's meant to point us to what is ultimately true. I don't have to perfectly love my neighbor. Jesus did that for me. Right? But as I meditate on Christ and his love for me, my heart does soften and change. And I do become a more generous person. When I really believe that God has provided and God will provide and he does meet my needs, I become a more loving neighbor towards others. And I experience that love of God more, and I'm able to show that love of God more. So for them as a people, they're going into a land, and they are to be holy and distinct, not in their behavior, but rather in their hope. They're to be holy and distinct in that they honestly believe that they have a God who loves them and who provides for them and who will provide for them. And that is going to radically change all of their lives in very day-to-day -day interactions with others. And the call is still, still the same for us. Right? We still are called into this world, into this nation, to be a distinct and holy people. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Lord, thank you for your generosity, that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us, that you rescued us from slavery, from, from the darkness, Lord, that you transferred us into your kingdom, that you have brought us into your family, that you now call us your sons and your daughters. My Lord, who are we that you would love us so much? Lord, help us and strengthen us in that love to be able to be a people that is distinct and beautiful. Lord, that reflects your beauty and that reflects your distinction. Lord, that reflects the way that you care and the way that you love. Lord, we, uh, we confess to you how easy it is, uh, Lord, to, to put our hope in money, in land, in the accumulation of things, uh, Lord, to the detriment of our ability to love other people. Lord, we thank you for your word that confronts us in our tendencies, that speaks the truth to us, and that uh, points us ultimately back to you. Lord, we're also thankful that we have your spirit, that we're not on our own in these things. Lord, but we have the church, we have the word, we have your spirit to help us. Lord, continue the work that you have started in us, turning us into a people that are wholehearted in our devotion to you and in our love for others. Uh, Lord, we do long to be a people that are generous and that who care more about your kingdom than our own little kingdoms. Uh, Lord, that love other people uh, in ways in which bring you glory and honor and praise. So Lord, strengthen us as a church. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.